everyone. Angelique Carson here, host of the Privacy Beat podcast. Uh, listen, I've been just getting kind of bored with myself lately. And so I thought that I would mix it up a little bit. And instead of just hearing my own voice and take recording several times when I mess up, as I debrief on the big news stories of the week, I thought I would bring back an old favorite. You know him, you love him. Joe Jerome is here to just help me get through a little bit of this news and maybe respond to it. Just pep things up a little bit. Joe, coming to me live from Florida. How are you? Oh yeah, Tampa. I'm not here to help you get through it. I'm here to cackle wildly get angry and criticize you. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Well, uh, we've only, listen, I'm going to limit us to five minutes. So there's literally going to be a ticking clock. I'm going to set the timer on my phone because I have an episode to actually put out that is a little bit long in length and I don't want to add a lot to it. So we're going to have to just move kind of quickly. I speak pretty quickly, but I'm going to have to have you, your rants, should you experience the compulsion to have one, they're going to have to be sort of limited. All right. Do you understand the parameters? I understand. Am I speaking slowly? Is that what you're making fun of? No, I must be, I must be quick and articulate. That's right. So those of you who are listening, I went through like I normally do and picked out this week, three stories that I think are newsworthy or interesting. Obviously there's much more privacy news out there, but, uh, you know, who cares? So I'm going to just take you through a little quick recap. And uh, Joe and I have not, there's nothing planned here. Joe is just, I just need someone here for accountability for this recording. And so I don't have to hear myself talk. Joe, as I set my timer, are you ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. All right. The first news story this week, I mean, this just broke and it's obviously huge. I thought it was huge. And then sometimes I have to think to myself, is this really huge or am I just getting excited? But hey, the state attorneys general, a bunch of state attorneys generals are suing uh, Meta for exploiting and manipulating kids. Joe, we don't brand bash here. So I know that you are a former Meta person, but I'm going to read this straight. Okay. 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 A group of more than 40 states, this is NPR reporting, sued Meta on Tuesday today that I'm recording this intro, accusing the social media giant of designing products that are deliberately addictive and fuel the youth mental health crisis. The attorney generals that are repping the state say Meta is used to exploit, uh, Meta is exploiting and manipulating children. The authorities say, the AGs say that Meta's I'm quoting here, dopamine manipulating features have poisoned an entire generation's mental health, citing a recommendation algorithm that determines what people see when they log onto Instagram and Facebook, the ability to like posts and to scroll without limits. I mean, dopamine manipulating features have poisoned an entire generation's mental health. Not uh, holding back here. The lawsuits are seeking to have Meta's design features considered unlawful under state consumer protection laws that trigger hefty financial penalties. And they're also asking courts to force the company to undertake drastic changes to Facebook and Instagram. Uh, legal experts, meanwhile, say that Meta is likely to invoke Section 230 as part of its defense, which often per, uh, protects big tech companies from some regulation. Um And Meta says in a statement, we're disappointed that instead of working productively with companies across the industry to create clear age-appropriate standards for the many apps teams use, the attorneys general have chosen this path. I'm supposed to give you my reaction? Yeah, anytime. You can also interrupt me when I read. <laughs> oh, I didn't want to be rude. I was, I was liking your vibe. Oh, okay. Thanks. I got to blast through this. So in my new guys, I'm actually like teaching students communications law. 
And so we literally are talking about Section 230 this week. So again, I see this come through. I start, again, people start sending me text messages. Uh, I've been cackling about this story all day. Uh, literally, as people were informing me about it, I'm putting together a slide talking about Section... Basically, it says Section 230, exclamation point, kids act, exclamation point, COPPA, exclamation point. Um, so this is all of that rolled into one. Not surprising at all. Someone reporting on this said that the AGs are really pushing for a settlement. And at first I thought, why would they do that? Like, don't they want to win, quote unquote, but... Uh... No, it's not about winning. It's about having a press release. And everybody's going to have press releases here at the end of the day. But then I thought, well, the settlement actually, like within the settlement terms, they can say like face meta must change their practices in X, Y, Z ways, which can be pretty meaningful, more meaningful than the dollar amount that they may have to pay as part of a settlement, right? Uh, I mean, come on. As you say, we don't do brand bashing here, but I think we'll all say that like the FTC consent orders are more impactful, not because of any fines that the FTC never gets because they don't have initial fining authority, but presumably because of what the companies have to do to comply in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, 20 years of and, audits and hey, included. You know, look, this is, this is, this is bipartisan agreement in our polarized society. At least everybody can agree that, uh, Facebook's got problems. Uh, Anytime you can invoke Jay-Z, I'm happy. Uh, Okay, so also, I thought this was a really interesting story. Um, The FTC is aiming to hire at least one, a child psychologist, Bedoya, Alvaro Bedoya, who uh, I love, I believe. We love. We love. Both of us have our hands on our hearts right now. Uh, (laughs) Bedoya. I'm supposed to be reading news and nonpartisan, but uh, I love him. Okay, he became, uh, Bedoya did this interview with The Record. Uh, He said he became a parent and saw and heard stories from parents about the mental health issues their children were experiencing and how in many cases the teens themselves were able to identify that this was occurring as a result of social media, which they were compulsively using, and they were able to identify these feelings of inadequacy that and and, and not sleeping, basically, um, as a result of using so much social media, which I completely understand. Joe and I had a conversation recently on this podcast about um, those feelings of inadequacy that are so um, pervasive now that, you know, we're just constantly seeing pictures of people who look like we should look or do what we should do. So I got, I got to say something here. Look, great idea for the FTC to do this. Um, I, I think I've said before, I'm not entirely sure we need to hear from from child advocacy groups anymore. We need, like, we know what the issues are. Let's hire an expert. It's good for regulators to hear from the experts directly. Uh, And I think everybody acknowledges that whether it's COVID, new technologies, whatever, um, again, speaking as a teacher now with a lot of students that, like, cannot pry themselves from their phones and various social media companies uh, on their phones, um, there is, there is, there is a, there's an issue here. We just don't exactly know what it is, and we don't know what the legal contours of it are and what should be done. So, yeah, let's good good in the FTC. I thought it also was interesting in this article, Bedoya was saying, you know, um, let's bring in these psychologists because um, he actually gives some context here. You know, at first, the FTC was lawyers, um, a bunch of attorneys that were in, investigating antitrust and consumer protection violations. And then they realized, oh, we need to have economists to figure out what some of these practices are doing for the economy. We need to put some dollar signs on this. I'm paraphrasing and semi-quoting Bedoya in this piece. And we need to actually quantify the likely effect of some of the conduct we're seeing in the industry. So the FTC brought on economists, and that's been, as Bedoya says, completely invaluable. There are now 80 PhD economists on staff. 
Then in the early 2000s, David Vladek was the head of the Bureau of Consumer Protection, saw that the FTC was going head-to-head with all these major tech companies who had these um, incredibly smart people uh, working at them and combating the FTC when they would, you know, when they would need to come uh, together in some sort of a uh, investigation or confrontation of some sort. And so... Vladek said, hey, well, let's bring on some full-time technologists. Um, and now there are a dozen full-time on staff at the FTC. So same thing sort of with the idea of bringing on psychologists as the FTC works on these children's issues. Um, Bedoya says, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that if someone's been defrauded of $90,000, this person's out $90,000. If someone's been injured by a product they've used, you're able to ask for the medical bills and say there's some real harm here. But if you're presented with research alleging an increase in depressive sy- systems, do I have the ability to say, well, is that clinical depression or is that something in route to clinical depression? Do I have the ability to differentiate between a mental health harm or an incipient mental health harm and a child who is sad? There's a difference between those things. I'm not expert enough to know that difference. So they're going to bring on at least one psychologist to help. Them Are you going to get to this third story in five minutes? Uh, we have already violated the five minute rule. I did have my timer go off. So like this is a trial run, Joe. So like, you know, right. what? like I won't it's say not nothing more. This is sort of the, I love this so much. I know that there are people who really dislike Max Rums because of the disruption he has caused in the privacy industry, but I live for the drama. It is like the only bright spot really in my life um, when Shrems comes up with some sort of issue that he's going to take things to the mattresses over. Or in this case, um, you know, if you can't beat him, join him. Although he, I, you know, he has kind of been victorious, I would say. Anyway, uh, here's the deal. Shrems wants to work at the Irish Data Protection Commission. Uh, Joe is silently laughing. Helen, so, you know, if you're new to privacy, what, what could we really compare this to, Joe? Uh, Helen and Max Rams are sort of adversaries, and do, I'm trying to think of a something comparable. Yeah, like, like a team of rivals. This is like Hillary Clinton going to work for Barack Obama. It could be that legendary. Yes. I actually love this idea. So here's the thing. Helen is nearing the end of her second five-year term as data protection commissioner in Ireland. And so at first I thought, oh, Shrems is trying to replace Dixon. And that was like very juicy and sexy. But then I realized, uh, oh, the data protection commission is actually, it has announced it's expanding to three commissioners because business is booming and it just like can't keep up with all these big tech problems. And so I believe that Max is applying to work as a commissioner alongside Helen, which I actually think that's a great idea. You know, like there's been mad beef and a lot of conflict between the two for so many years, but you know, relationships grow through conflict and maybe if they're actually working on the same team, I don't know. Fully support. Right. I mean, I don't know. This could be good. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. Maybe it's a Shrems Dixon uh, situation for 2024. Great. You did. You successfully talked about three stories in five minutes in 12 minutes. Anyway, on to this week's episode featuring Goodwin Proctor's Gabe Maldoff and the IPP's Coben Zweifel Keegan. Uh, friends of Joe and, uh, and mine. And also, uh, if you listen to this podcast, you know that there is a pretty significant competition going now for who can get higher numbers and shares on the episode. Um, Joe, 
you're doing really, really well right now. I have to say, you're really up there in the rankings. I think your episode is number two all time at the moment. And uh, as long as I stay ahead of Gabe and Coben, I am happy. All right. On to the interview. Thanks, Joe. Anyway, I digress. I'm a little low energy today. Uh, I woke up this morning. I went to bed too late last night and I woke up this morning feeling, um, not good. I had, I, I have that feeling like before you get a cold. So I took, but I was just sick a couple months ago and I rarely get sick. So I, so I'm not sure what it is. I took some Zycam and I drank a vitamin C, but I also think that it's possible that I have, um, a peanut butter hangover. Um, I don't know if I've talked to you guys about my peanut butter struggles before, but I have, so I have like a really addictive personality, you know, like I, I get addicted to things (laughs) (laughs) and so I know that I'm not allowed to really have peanut butter in my home because I can't handle it responsibly. Um, I've even tried buying like packets of peanut butter. And then when I crave peanut butter, I'll be like, well, I can have one packet, but like, that's like not a spoon in a jar, you know, so it's safer. But then I just have more than one packet. And every three months or so, I tell myself that I've probably overcome like my struggle. And I'll be like, you know, I think that I can have peanut butter responsibly in the home. Now let's try again. And, um, I'm not drinking alcohol right now. I'm giving my body a little break from booze. And so I'm, I'm kind of allowing other treats. But what happened was I did purchase, um, some crunchy peanut butter, all natural, you know, just peanuts and salt. And last night we kind of got into it and I, I really went like spoon deep and I woke up this morning just feeling really sluggish and like hungover in a way. And I, the only thing I can attribute it to is like a little bit of a peanut butter OD. So, um, drinking some coffee right now and trying to come out of it. But if you sense some low energy for me, it's either I'm getting very ill or my struggles with peanut butter reveal themselves publicly now. What does WebMD say about peanut butter overdose? (laughs) <laughs> I almost spit out my coffee. I don't know, but I will. I will Google that and get that information. Um, yeah, we're gonna have to. I mean, I have to say that I get sodium headaches. Like, if I have too much sodium or not enough water to counteract the sodium, I definitely am sensitive to that. Mm. So, the fact that that is one of the main ingredients of your peanut butter oh. might contribute to the hangover like the Yes, I had a massive headache when I woke I up. Know. I had a I had a training session with my trainer and I had to just rub my head at the beginning for a while before I could move. So that this is making sense, yeah. Anyway, um for folks who came here to listen to a privacy focused podcast, I guess we should probably get there, but to be honest, sometimes I just book these things so I have scheduled time on your calendars or you have to pay Uh, attention to me even more than you have to on our text thread and I get like one-on-one time with you uh but yeah we'll talk about some stuff Gabriel you did mention when we were chatting earlier that you're doing some work on data brokers now um on behalf of your clients and I I think this is really interesting I um as we know California passed a bill uh on data brokers that will allow California residents to sort of do uh, a little one-stop clicking on opting out of some of the 
records data brokers are collecting and sharing about them and also requiring, um, which I think is a sounds like a big deal, data brokers to not only register as a data broker, but also to comply with um, these deletion requests continuously, like at a continuous rate, right? Like you don't just like delete it once, you have to go in, I think it's every 30 or 45 days that you have to be uh, deleting this data and then also performing audits uh, by a third party to indicate that like, yeah, you are deleting data and doing what you're supposed to do, which is a pretty big deal. And I'm wondering how that's impacting your daily work at the law firm. Yeah. So uh, this data broker issue is kind of surprisingly big right now because, you know, in in the the lofty heights of the the worlds that uh, people like COVID inhabit, where I have like one foot in the door, we sort of talk about these big privacy issues. Um, and data brokers was one of those that we talked about, you know, as from as as from the beginning of when I got into privacy eight years ago. And the conversation was probably even going on eight years before that, and probably even eight years eight years before that. Um, but it it sometimes takes a while for these issues to kind of filter down to. Um, you know, the, the level of the mechanics that I, I guess we at law firms are often when dealing with these issues. So, uh, we have clients who are thinking hard about these new California requirements that are going to come into force. Um, but interestingly, a lot of the issues that are filtering through aren't really the new law, but just really addressing like how do data brokers comply with existing laws? Um, it's just becoming an increasing area of focus. Um, because, uh, we're seeing laws, you know, like all these state privacy laws in the CCPA, which are kind of shutting down avenues for data brokers to accumulate data. So there's, you know, increasing pressure on them to find better data. What are these sources going to be as, um, that data becomes more locked down? Um, and then also on the flip side, all sorts of companies that historically relied on data brokers for what they did are now sort of understanding the implications of it and um, looking more closely at how that data is sourced and whether it's been done in a compliant way. So um, there's just a lot of pressure on that industry, uh, both for the data broker brokers themselves and for companies that are relying on, on them, which is, uh, you know, a lot of companies. Um, and, you know, these state privacy laws are fairly new. GDPR at this point is not new business, but um, it's taken a while for uh, some of these kind of requirements on paper to filter down into company practice. And increasingly, we're seeing people focus on um, what are the risks around use of these services. Um, At the same time, you know, it's not all bad news for the data broker industry. There, there have been some decisions suggesting that the scope of GDPR's application to these technologies is maybe more limited than, than we thought. Um, and, you know, there's this continuous debate about whether general purpose laws like the GDPR can ban whole industries. And I think the evidence so far is that it hasn't, but will it in the future? Unclear. Um, so, you know, that's really the focus right now. I think the, there are questions coming in about the delete act. Uh, but it, it, I I would say that the delete act only, um, 
it's an evolution from existing requirements um, and isn't really a game changer. I am curious what Coben has to say about that. And also I'm fascinated by, I mean, one thing that you said that was interesting to me is that the GDPR and its requirements are now just sort of trickling down into practice. And the reason that I think that that's so interesting is, um, well, not only because it's been five years, almost six, but also like when I'm thinking about content, I know no one cares about me right now, uh, but I'm going to be selfish for a second. Like when I think about content, I'm always like GDPR is over. We have done it. Like there is no reason to be writing guidance about GDPR right now. I mean, first of all, there's plenty of guidance out there if you look for it, but it just seems so untimely. So I think it's really interesting that like it's just filtering down into um, company practice. I wanted to ask Gabe a follow-up as well on the state of broker thing, which is, um, you said, you know, will the GDPR basically dismantle an entire industry, um, or not, like, does it have the power to do that? And I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you think that it could happen in sort of a piecemeal way where like, you know, we're feeling the squeeze put on data brokers and now companies, as you said, are having to reflect on like the ways in which they're working with data brokers or relying on data brokers. Like, do you think data brokers are ever going to go become sort of obsolete simply because like maybe all of these piecemeal requirements start to chip away at the benefits that companies can reap from them? Or are, is the data broker industry as lucrative as I understand it to be and therefore will always be like a necessary part of commerce, really, no matter how much pressure gets put on it? I am. I cannot really predict whether you know, the, the, the industry will go away. Uh, but I think your point about chipping away is exactly the, the right metaphor. Um, you know, GDPR limits sensitive data more strictly than non-sensitive data. So that was already an area that was being chipped out of what data brokers wanted to do in Europe. Now we see some opt-in um, states for sensitive data in the U.S. And so that further erodes the, the amount of data that, that some brokers are, are willing to take on. Um, and, and I think that's, that's kind of the trend there. We're, we're not at a point yet where we're banning this industry. I don't know if we will ever get there. Um, you know, despite the fact that some, um, activists would, would call for that. Um, but it's clear that the regulation is, regulations are trying to trim some of the excesses. Um, and trying to give people more ability to control what information about them is out there. So uh, it, it does chip away. At the same time, uh, this information is, is going to be um, important for companies for a long time. And uh, it's, you know, not always as creepy as it sounds. Um, you know, you, you can have some practices that are really in-depth consumer profiles where you're really able to analyze a lot about personal characteristics. And, and But there are other services that are much more limited that are still impacted by this. You know, like um, a recruiter has to get your contact information from somewhere. Um, and it, it can be annoying to get recruiting calls if you don't want them, but it can also be helpful if you're looking for a job. Uh, and clearly it's valuable to the companies that are looking for people. So 
it's hard to see how all of it goes away, but I think your your concept of chipping away is is the right way to think about it. Is that MB in the background? It is. I think the mailman must be here. <laughs> I love this it. pesky mailman always in the way. Um, yeah, and I, I totally agree with Gabe on that in terms of I. I mean, we use this term data broker and it obviously has a pejorative context. And I think that's deservedly so in many um, uh, in many applications. Um, part of the idea of having comprehensive consumer privacy protections is that we're going to is that we help to standardize um, practices across an industry and help to bring up the lowest common denominator to a certain threshold uh, to get to get rid of some of the worst practices and, and make sure that it's a trustworthy industry, even when it is something like data brokerage, which really kind of encompasses a lot of different things. There's so many different uses and, and potential ways that personal data in mass is useful to different applications. And um, I think of a couple of things in particular, one being academic research. Um, this is an area that um, I, I was at PSR actually, um, I was able to, or no, it was before PSR. I'm blending my events together. This has been a crazy couple of weeks, but I was able to hang out with Shay Swagger uh, earlier um, from Future Privacy Forum, and he focuses on uh, access to data for researchers. And often it's through uh, these kinds of um, companies or through co or one-on-one -on -one companies directly that researchers are able to do a lot of helpful uh, analyses that are that sometimes end up being um, curtailed by privacy laws. So keeping those kinds of applications in mind is really important. Um, and also on the, I mean, for better or for worse, one of the arguments that has uh, hampered the ADPPA is the, is law enforcement saying, "Look, we rely on this stuff now." Um, and I don't. I think I can certainly imagine a world where law enforcement doesn't rely on this type of uh, these types of profiles and, and services that data brokers offer. Um, but they're claiming this is the world we live in now, and if you take this away from us, bad guys could opt out of us being able to find them. Um, and that's uh, that's kind of the policy world. That's the policy dynamic that the legislators are having to grapple with. Um, but I, I think it highlights the fact that there's so many different ways that, that people buy and sell data. And if we're if we actually drill down on some of those uses and think about which ones do we want to allow, which ones do we want to restrict, um, it, it, it becomes it's more messy, but it's also kind of the needed work that the privacy people are doing all the time. I think those you are mean great, great points. Sorry, Lika, I just want to add a couple things on those because I think they're great points. One. Um, on the law enforcement point, we saw just a couple days ago, um, the, IC the ICO had taken action against Clearview AI for breaches of GDPR. Um, Clearview AI appealed to, um, to the high court in the UK. Um, and the court ruled just a couple days ago that the GDPR didn't apply to these activities because of the law enforcement angle, which fell outside. So, you know, clearly that legislation reflects this concern that law enforcement interests are different from commercial interests. Um, and, you know, it, it will be an interesting result if uh, these uses, which have really, which could have really profound implications for people being caught up in state surveillance, being caught up in a law enforcement investigation, um, end up being less regulated than, you know, buying and selling contact data to look for a sales lead. So um, that's one point. And then on the research point, 
uh, the other thing that's getting wrapped up in here, and this this might also transition to uh, the work Coben's doing on AI, is uh, that a lot of this data historically has been derived from scraping, and there's increasing recognition of um, sort of the importance of scraping for these services, the importance of scraping for other activities like research, um, and uh, also the the potential risks of scraping. You know, we used to view this as all publicly available information, so that was kind of the end of the question. But there's been litigation around this in the U.S. The LinkedIn HiQ stuff has kind of changed the way some of these platforms are thinking about how they allow people to scrape their services, which is um, you know really important, especially for the research uses and this conversation about. Uh, how we build and train AI models. Um, just a point of clarification. I understand the idea, like concept of cops using like clear, like facial recognition to catch a criminal in a crowd, for example. But we're saying that cops are also leaning on data brokers for what, like they're tracing their, like, wouldn't you just go to the ISP to trace their online activity? Yeah, I mean, so not even it's not even that level of kind of granularity. Oh. Um, cop uh, law enforcement is using um, relies on the services, often some of the same services that are provided to commercial actors, but maybe some specialized services as well that are building profiles about individuals. Um, and so it's mo it's like it's like uh, the same kind of financial information, but also just criminal records, um, because we live in a multi-state area. Um, actually, a lot of law enforcement relies on commercial services to collate um, criminal background information uh, from across jurisdictions. Okay. 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 Um. In California now, I believe the number is that there's like 500 data brokers registered as data brokers. Do you think that there are many, many more, or do you think that 500 is reflective? Any any ideas on that? I don't know how you'd know the answer to that. Just a guess, I guess. I think the definitional, it, it matters so much how we kind of think about them. But yeah, if you're talking about people that combine and sell personal information, I don't know. I guess that seems... It seems to be a good sample of them, uh, okay. that number. Um, I don't think there would be major players who fit outside of that 500. Yeah. Okay. But if, you, if anything, yeah. it's probably over-inclusive. I mean, there might be right. some really small actors who are kind of new and haven't gotten their act together to register yet. But the definition of what counts as a data broker in California is, is pretty broad um, because, uh, you know, if you share data with a third party for... Um, for advertising, for, for cross-context behavioral advertising, that could be a sale under CCPA. And if any of that data was collected from another source other than from the individual directly, then you're a data broker. So um, it's there, there's likely a lot of companies on there who have registered out of precaution, um, but aren't what you would sort of think of as a typical data broker. I guess it doesn't really matter. Like my, my question was because I was thinking, you know, part of the reason that we use data brokerage or data brokers, like as a pejorative term, I think is just because of the idea that we've always 
um, understood them to operate in sort of this shadowy world where we don't see the transactions. We don't know like the names of the data broker companies like we do the names of, you know, other household brand names or whatever. But I guess that's sort of irrelevant because the public, I mean, data brokers are one of those issues. Like I feel like the public is starting to grasp, you know, privacy and um, surveillance, um, even maybe like commercial surveillance and those sort of things. But data brokers are something that still I think is a few layers too deep for like the general public to care about. Um, But I guess, yeah, I'm just thinking about the shift that would need to happen for us to sort of appreciate data data brokers for what they are. And I think part of that, like the sense of like um, negativity I have towards it is just because it feels secrety and like something they don't want me to know, you know, which is like probably not true. It's just like those transactions happen inside of a computer. Um, but it has always just felt like a little suspicious, like the world's a little suspicious to me, you know? And when they had to register as data brokers, like in California, I sort of felt like, ah, like this is like a gotcha moment, you know, like now we see you. But I guess that's probably just like, I like to see things as like movies in my mind where there's like a bad guy and a good guy and, you know, which one will triumph. It's probably a little more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that brings up two things in my mind. One is that just the power of of naming things, right? Like we we have these terms that we use colloquially and even in a policy sense in very loose ways often. And I think data broker is an example of that. AI is another great example of a word that needs to be better and more precisely oh defined when we're talking about. I never want to. Um, I never want to hear AI again ever. But we'll talk about it. But then regulators come along and, and create a legal definition around it. And now suddenly it kind of it we have this this real definition that people have to grapple with and it might be over or under inclusive from how we thought about it. And that ends up having ramifications for how we think of that category and, and how it changes moving forward. Um, I also think it's important to think about the um, I forgot what I was going to say. I knew if I started talking about two things, I would forget the second thing. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, well, anyway, data, data brokers are a thing. Uh, they're not all bad. They do some good things for us. We appreciate you, data brokers, whoever you are. Um, Cutting all of this. <laughs> Gabriel. <laughs> Gabriel, I did also want to ask you about um, a case that you mentioned or um, a topic that you mentioned, which is uh, this wiretapping situation in California. Gabe, tell me about this new wiretapping situation <laughs> you're talking about in California. Oh, the peanut butter. The peanut butter is right. It's embedded right in the brain. All right. <laughs> uh, well, this is another example of, of things taking a while to trickle down. Um, so we, we've been tracking lately a huge uptick in uh, litigation around um, wiretapping and interception statutes, primarily in California, but also in several several other states. Um, and the the way these um, lawsuits came about was uh, really out of a decision in California um, that kind of opened the door to um, claiming that the use of session recording technology on a company's website. So this is like a pixel that tracks how someone moves around on the website and lets the company see what did they click on, what was the journey like, usually used for analytics purposes. Um, A claim went forward in California um, 
it, it survived um, motion to dismiss and summary judgment uh, on the on the issue that allowing a third party on your website to do this was um, an interception or a wiretap um, because it didn't have uh, the consent of all parties to the communication in, in square quotes. Um, and this has opened the door to, you know, a, a number of lawsuits in California and a couple other states alleging similar claims, not just for session replay technologies, but also for, um, you know, some of those chatbot widgets you see popping up on websites and also for like third party ad tracking cookies and pixels like Meta's and Google's ads pixels. Uh, and you know, it's kind of interesting because the, the U S has resisted cookie specific legislation, uh, for a long time while Europe has pursued it. Uh, but this, um, this spate of legislation is forcing companies to rethink whether they want to, um, start asking for consent from website visitors for, for these cookies. Um, and it's just another example of, uh, you know, the, the law and certainly the plaintiff's bar catching up to, you know, where the privacy conversation was a while ago. So, uh, you know, not to belabor it, but back in like 2000 or 2001, there were a series of lawsuits um, claiming that use of tracking cookies was, um, was in violation of the Federal Wiretap Act. Um, courts largely shut that down. That was really the beginning of, of website cookies. Um, and those claims sort of went dormant for like 16, 17 years until a couple lawsuits related to Gmail and Yahoo, uh, Yahoo's use of, um, mail content for ads revived this theory that these, um, that these wiretap statutes had a role to play. And then now we see this most, um, recent example. So, uh, an interesting trend we're tracking and it is changing how, uh, uh, companies deal with cookies on their websites. Two questions. One, why has the U S resisted cookie legislation when the UK or the EU has moved ahead with it? And two, aren't we killing cookies? Aren't we in the process of doing that? And why aren't they dead yet? <laughs> uh, on the first, um, Look, this is a personal opinion. Uh, European cookie legislation is not great for user experience. Um, now, there are values for privacy because it's opt-in. So if you don't want to be tracked, there, there are definitely benefits. Um, but the user experience consequences suck. Like it just sucks to like open a website and on your phone and half your screen is this cookie banner and you have to make the split section second decision. Um, so that's not great. Um, I think, uh, implementing cookie banners for these U S purposes is even worse because, um, what, uh, the standard of consent that's being applied is not the same as EU where you have to opt into tracking, but it's really more of like a notice. And if you have a notice, then there's, you're less likely to get sued. And so, you know, where people are moving is towards a notice to address cookies in the U S. So that's even worse. I get a pop-up banner that ruins my browsing experience and there's not really that much I can do about it. Um, and I'm not really getting a choice and I might've been tracked before I got this pop-up notice anyways. 
So like, I don't think that's great. Uh, I think probably a better way to deal with it is um, working out what are, um, you know, the types of uses and sharing of data that we think people should have to opt into, should be opt out or shouldn't be allowed at all. We're starting to do that through laws that regulate sales and targeted advertising, um, some of which obviously have opt-ins for kids um, and for sensitive data. So, you know, that seems like a more reasonable approach to me than surface a banner to everybody. Uh, but I, I might just be, uh, you know, annoyed at having tapped too many cookie banners when I lived in the UK. No, it's the, yeah, no, I mean, it's the worst. Yeah. Right. I, and I think that, that actually reminds me of um, what I was on the second point I was going to make earlier about um, uh, about consumers and data brokers. I think some of the same tensions are in evidence uh, with cookies where um, I, I think policymakers and privacy people and just people in the policy space have been wrestling for the past decade with trying to figure out what the right amount of burden on consumers it makes sense to place versus creating bright line rules that the company has to decide on the on their own how much where how much does notice and choice how much do consumer choices uh really make sense in these complex scenarios and so in the data broker context we're talking about these folks who aren't necessarily who don't have a a relationship with consumers. I think that's why you see them as, as shady or kind of shadowy figures. Um, the whole point of these companies is they don't interact directly with consumers. And so it, regardless of how nefarious they are, it's just that you don't know, know about them because they're, that's not their business model. Um, and with cookies, I think uh, part of the this naming and, or in regulatory boxing around all cookies creates the sense in consumers that, that all cookies are bad or all cookies are the same versus uh, limiting specific uses like Gabe was talking about. Um, and I think uh, we're still experimenting with, different, with the level of uh, consumer empowerment that makes sense in this, in this realm. And I think that's part of where the delete act has evolved the conversation where we you're, uh, California is looking at this existing fi list of 500 data brokers that no one's ever heard of and saying, how does that really empower consumers? Wouldn't it make more sense to have a universal opt-out, a single a single point of, of control, um, rather than going to each new company and trying to figure out what it does? Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we, we still haven't quite necessarily gotten, I think there's still lots of different ideas in different directions of, of where it makes sense to give the choice to the consumer and where there should be specific rules. And we're moving towards the latter, I think, but it's, that'll take even longer to see the, uh, see how that plays out. I think. Leek, I want to take up your, your second question. You asked about what about the cookie-less world? Uh, yeah. I, I th so that is that that does seem to be happening. Companies are moving in the direction of providing options for online advertising that that don't involve cookies, and we're seeing it in practice. Um, we need to be careful about whether we view that as a privacy win or not, and whether it is really depends on how specifically it's built. Um, but some of the solutions that are cookieless involve much more wholesale, like collecting of data by a website owner, correlating that data back to their own records to try to figure out who that is. And then, you know, 
selling it or sharing it with other third parties in more sort of bilateral deals that allow for advertising on other platforms. So some of these solutions um, do result in more data sharing, uh, more explicit data sharing. Um, what is changing certainly is, um, you know, who benefits and who has the power in these systems. Um, so, you know, under a, a previous model where you're very reliant on um, major platforms like uh, Meta and Google and others, um, you know, maybe less data is shared because all the data gets sort of captured within those walled gardens. Um, but at, at the same time, you're supporting, you know, the, the biggest companies. Um, the cookie-less alternative, I mean, it really depends how it's being done and there are different models being floated, but uh, some of them may mean worse privacy, but also, um, you know, a more open system where upstart companies can challenge the, the more dominant platforms. So the cookie-less world as we're seeing it right now in terms of like sort of this new dawn is just like cookies by another name kind of. Yeah. I mean, I see that cookies are just a technology or specific They're as they like to say, they're just files stored on your computer by your browser. Um, I think they can be used for tracking and they can be used to remember your username. When you go to a website, there's lots of different, um, ways that cookies are deployed. Um, it's the use of third-party cookies that's been really challenged, but there's lots of other technologies that can result in the same ends. And so I think the really, uh, the meaningful distinction is whether we're trying to design, whether we're, we've taken privacy as an externality versus kind of not even caring uh, whether privacy is protected or not, or whether in this new age we're actually designing with privacy as one of the goals. Um, and so we have this opportunity as we're, because th th this is a really nascent area, we haven't quite figured out how the technology, what the norms will be in a cookie-less future, um, but we have the opportunity to, to innovate towards privacy and make sure that we're, uh, the, the companies are building uh, new technologies that um, have, that are built with consumer privacy in mind. But at the same time, as Gabe is hinting at, like, you can easily re just recreate the same system without are without the specific technology of cookies in the loop. Um, and uh, that's up to everyone to kind of make sure that we go the right direction there. Isn't there a company called um, T Terra True that helps you build privacy into your solution? Uh, yes. And the entire team back at Terra True right now, which I'm sure they'll listen to this the second it drops, is uh, cheering in their seats and spinning around in their office chairs at that uh, at that drop. So we appreciate you, Gabriel, for that. Do I get <clears> some yes. merch out of that? Yeah, you get you get a pooch. We're going to send you a yes. pooch. <laughs> um, okay, so... Speaking of shifts, uh, we know that we're dealing with all of these state privacy laws. For a while, it was like really exciting. I was like, and another one, another one, another one, and blah, blah, blah. Now it's just kind of like, all right, every state has a privacy law pretty much. I mean, you know, uh, we've got like 30 something to go, but it feels like every state has a privacy law now. And uh, I'm wondering, Coben, uh, since you are interacting with um, so many of the people on the ground who have to help companies 
uh, or their own companies comply with all this stuff. Uh, how are people doing? Is it just kind of like we've adjusted now to the idea that we're going to have to comply with these disparate requirements, although there are some uh, significant overlaps? Or are people still sort of pushing for a brighter day where there's uh, one standard, which, as we all know, we shall never see? <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't think I take the, I don't think I take a dark, as dark a view of the, of the one standard as you do. I'm a Scorpio. I, <laughs> this is not the first time that's come up. Um, yeah, no, I, so one of the highlights actually of PSR for me was I got to teach a state privacy workshop along with David Stouse from Hush Blackwell. Mm. And we had a lot of fun with that. I mean, and I think we were, it was a fun dynamic between the two of us, not just because we're goofy guys, but also because, um, because you're both so with, tall. Because we're both really tall. Yes, that's right. It's one of the few people that's taller than me. It's kind of creepy. Um, but he's like, his job as a compliance attorney is to advise people about how to comply and also how to like get, how to say yes while still complying with privacy laws in the States. And my job as a policy privacy nerd is to say like, but remember, it's not just about compliance. We're not just focused on these specific uh, requirements of these states, but about the norms that have emerged over time. Privacy remains a principles-based uh, profession, and uh, we're always evolving and thinking about how those principles apply to new technologies. Um, that's still the same in the states, and I'm thinking, and I see it as a big picture. I think there really are um, major themes in the so-called patchwork, and there's only there's it's only in the weeds that you get into some of the major variations where you might have to tweak your practices for specific states um, but there really is a high water line that continues to to emerge we just have to there is you're right a lot of work to kind of make sure that we're aware of what that high water that water line looks like um, and continue to adapt to make sure that we're at least meeting those minimum compliance obligations i read this article the other day that i actually did um I didn't really prep for this interview because it's you two, and I just like to see where their conversation goes. But one thing I did note in a Google Doc was this article I read. It's an op-ed by, uh, this person is called Logan Colas. Uh, he is, I had never heard of him. He is a economic policy analyst with the Buckeye Institute's Economic Research Center and the author of, this is not a plug for him, by the way. I don't know if he's like a, you know, smart person or a fraud, but, uh, hopefully a smart person. Um, the author of Key Principles for State Data Privacy Laws and a federalism opportunity and a congressional failure, how states can fix the data privacy patchwork. I tell you all that just to give you some context, but his argument in this column that he writes for the Hill is that, um, you know, we've got all of these state laws coming in and it's a mess and companies are trying to comply. And ideally, Congress would pass a tailored comprehensive privacy framework that preempts these state laws, but that seems unlikely. And so he says that what should happen um, is that States should adopt identical data privacy rules through data privacy compacts that would simplify compliance and show Washington what really matters. Um, states have formed similar compacts for regulating healthcare, agriculture, taxation, blah, blah, blah. Data privacy rules should be no different. And so he says that collaborative approach should start by ensuring that all state laws include an affirmative defense for businesses that comply with the data protection rules recommended by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST as we all know it. 
He says this creates a strong incentive for companies to protect data privacy, making adoption more attractive and widespread. And unlike statutes, NIST recommendations are regularly updated to keep pace with burgeoning technology and evolving practices. So businesses will have to keep pace too in order to uh, avoid liability. What are your thoughts on that? I hadn't heard that before. Maybe you guys have because you do this work. Um, NIST is something that like I've obviously reported on here and there throughout my career, never spent a significant amount of time on. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that argument. Yeah, I can respond to that. I think, um, honestly, we could have a whole podcast episode just talking about this, um, because I think this is a really nuanced issue. Um, He's making some really interesting points there, uh, and I can pick pick apart that a little bit. So um, for me, the NIST privacy framework is uh, a really important guidepost, um, but there's a lot of different ways to comply with it. It's not it's not a prescriptive regulation, and so um, it is it's it's flexible. It's meant to be flexible. It's meant to respond and and uh, react to industry norms and and provide a meaningful way to kind of build governance structures. Um, but it doesn't necessarily meet the same uh, requirement. It doesn't meet the same purpose that a black letter uh, regulatory apparatus does. Um, he's right that some states have started to um, recognize it as uh, some sort of kind of soft safe harbor, or at least uh, recognizing it in text as something that like, if you are compliant with this, um, we will give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'm always really interested in that uh, from a kind of, as an accountability uh, nerd, I really am interested in um, finding those mechanisms that encourage companies to adopt voluntary practices. And so um, it's cool to see states start to reflect that. Um, but I think I would caution that uh, there's not a robust accountability apparatus built out around um, anyone verifying that you're compliant with the NIST framework. And given the flexibility of it, I think it's a little bit more challenging to figure out how that would look. But you could imagine that it'd be like a way to certify against that or something, and you could have third-party bodies that could do that. And then maybe um, I could see the, the, like, you could see kind of how that helps to incentivize and spread privacy norms across the industry. But I don't know that we're quite there yet. Maybe additional state recognition does provide that, but um, I think uh, I don't know that that ever fully erases the need that people see for uh, the spread of privacy regulations and privacy laws in states. When I changed, yeah, when I changed law firms two years ago, uh, I went from a firm that served primarily like really big Fortune 500 companies to one that's really focused on. Um, startups and mid-sized companies that are in high growth mode. Um, and something like the NIST framework has value when you're dealing with big companies, because the central challenge there is, hey, we've got 35,000, we've got 50,000 employees. All of them have jobs that might do something related to data. Like, how do we figure out, how do we even get a grasp on what the scope of our data activities is? How do we like manage this issue? Um, you know, we're not not everybody's going to be a privacy person. So how do we even like get our arms around it? And the, the NIST framework helps you build a governance mechanism. It, it seems pretty closely benchmarked to GDPR um, that would allow you to just kind of keep track 
and then do assessments and allow the, the legal or privacy team to get involved where needed. Um, but when you're working with small companies, you know, they actually know what they're doing. Um, it's not, it's not really a problem of scale in the same way. It's really a problem of substance. What does the law say we can and can't do? And to Coben's point, something like a, a NIST framework tells you you need to know what you're doing and do an analysis, but it doesn't tell you the content of that analysis. What is the actual thing we have to do? Um, so, you know, I, I see it like Coben said, I'm really just echoing him. Um, it sort of creates um, a layer of governance, but it doesn't set, I think, substantive rules that would fully address the issue. Now, it sounds like the author um, suggested that the NIST framework can continuously continuously be updated and, you know, might address those things in the future. So, you know, that is possible. Um, I'm not sure that the current patchwork is so um, disparate or different that we really need um, a harmonized approach at the moment. Oh, sexy. There was that initial panic. So it's interesting to hear um, now. I, I also get the vibe that things have calmed down a little bit. I don't see people freaking out uh, on the tweets or the LinkedIn about like, how am I supposed to know the difference between these two laws? So, um, so maybe, yeah, maybe we can put this talk of a federal law to bed and just deal with the states. Well, I would hold, love hold, that on, so much. hold on, hold on, hold on. So Joe Jerome said he was that he wanted us to think about him heckling us while we were talking. Uh, and as I said that a moment ago, his face popped up in my head and all I could <laughs> well, see I'm was sorry. him heckling me. So I just <laughs> want to be clear that, uh, the laws are not so different that it's like a challenge to comply with all of them, but that is not the same as saying, um, you know, the standards in those laws are what they should be at a national level. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's still a conversation that we need to have. Um, I know Joe Jerome, his face popping up in mine right now would be saying, I don't like federal law either. I don't, I don't really know what he's advocating. Um, but you know, I, I think the, the baseline that these state laws have set is, um, in general, except for a few specific pockets, like the sensitive data issue, um, is general not, in, is generally not that, that hard for companies to meet and is, um, pretty even across the different states. Just for folks before we close, because I've taken too much of your time more than I asked for. Um, but as your friend, you know that I'm greedy and will always ask you for more than I deserve. Um, Joe Jerome is a friend of ours. Many people will know this, but on a recent, I had recently had him on the podcast. He was determined to try and beat, uh, the three of us numbers wise in the rankings, uh, in terms of episodes downloaded. And when I told him that we were going to be doing this episode on our, uh, on our friend thread, I think he was just in a grumpy mood. He needed, uh, what Ruby Zeffo tells me sometimes, uh, he needed a, a fig Newton and a nap at the time, but he told us that when he was listening to this podcast, he was just going to, uh, call us all, I guess to himself, uh, call us all shills. <clears throat> and, uh, I don't really know what, who we're shilling for or what at this point, but, uh, there it is. So, um, I think it's only appropriate that we brought him up in this conversation and we do hope that he's since then had a Fig Newton and a nap and is feeling more at peace with himself down there in Tampa, of which he is now a resident. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. 